Let's take our Bibles, please. Do our Bible study. Talking about the Lord, we're going to talk a little bit more about what He would like from us, and that's in Romans chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, the men are moving through the auditorium. They have notes that they have in hand. They're also, those notes are located in the bulletin. But if you don't have one, it'll help you to be focused a little bit. Then by all means, just hold up your hand as they move through the auditorium. They'll hand you one of these pieces of paper so you can follow along taking notes and going with us. There's a story that I read about a Dr. Kane, Evan Kane, that back in the early 1900s, this was a gentleman who did all a lot of different surgeries in a hospital there in New York that he had founded, and uh, he had successfully completed some 4,000 appendectomies during the course of his years. Now, later on in his life, as he was doing all of his surgical procedures and all, he became an advocate of what was called local anesthetic. Instead of putting the person completely out, we would localize the anesthetic, and his thought was that that patient would improve a whole lot better after he had the local anesthesia, that they would improve better, their, their recovery time would be cut down. And so what he wanted to do was perform a surgery on somebody with a local anesthetic to prove his point, especially in the appendectomy. And so he asked for a number of volunteers and he finally found one. Let me read some of the story as it goes on. It says, Dr. Kane searched for a volunteer, a patient who was willing to undergo surgery while under local anesthesia. Local anesthesia. A volunteer was not easily found. Many were squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others were fearful that the anesthetic might wear off too soon. That makes sense. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane found a candidate. On Tuesday morning, February 15th, the historic operation occurred. The patient was prepped and wheeled into the operating room. The local anesthetic was applied. As he had done thousands of times, Dr. Kane dissected the superficial tissues and located the appendix. He skillfully excised it and concluded the surgery, and during the procedure, the patient complained of only minor discomfort. The volunteer is taken then, was taken into post-op, placed in the hospital ward. He quickly recovered and was dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane had proved his theory. Thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Dr. Kane demonstrated that local anesthesia was a viable and even preferable alternative in surgery. Now, I said that there is, there is you know, some important things that happened in the surgery. Number one was the first use of local anesthetic. Number two, the strange thing about this is Dr. Kane was the doctor and the patient. Okay, he volunteered because he was so convinced that this was something important. Now, I'm not advocating this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but historically, he proved, because he was such an advocate, he volunteered and said, I will, I will submit to that surgery because he was convinced this was so important. There are certain things in our spiritual life that are more important than an appendectomy. And that is following Jesus Christ, serving him. To what extreme would you go? Would you be willing to put yourself under the scalpel of God's word and have God do some surgery on you? Would you be willing to spiritually take out some things in your life that you know are not pleasing to the Lord? Are you so devoted to following Christ that you would put yourself as the example setter for others to follow him. We want to talk about one area of example setting this morning. Let's pray, and then let's get into our topic. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to word, learn you about your word. And I pray that as we do this overview of the New Testament, that you would help us to glean much from it, that it would be profitable in our hearts, and our lives, and it would make a difference to a number of people here. For those of us who have already taken this first step of discipleship. I pray that you would help us to recollect and to examine that we are following through to this day the way we were supposed to. It is one thing for us, Father, to gather here in a church service and to talk about serving you. It is another to do it day in and day out. So I pray that the seriousness of purpose would be in all of our hearts and minds as we look into your word this morning. I pray it in your name. Amen. Now, we know this is true. We know that around the world there are many people who are gathered, many church leaders who get together on a regular basis from all different walks of faith who are trying to find common ground where they can unite behind, where they can gather behind, where they can get together and find this harmony for ecumenicalism, for harmony and unity, but there's going to be some things that are dividing. There are some doctrines that are dividing. And I'm, for one, am one of those that says there are some doctrines we should not compromise that we should not get together and cast aside the doctrines that are very important in Scripture. And there are several of them. There are a number of them. In fact, let me just rephrase that. The whole Bible is important enough that we have never to compromise the Bible. 
And so we ought not to say, for the sake of working together with others, that we will just throw away the Bible. That's not true. We should stand true in the Bible. There is one area that, that is even divisive within the Bible community, and that is one doctrine that is very, very, very important. It is the doctrine of baptism. It is an important doctrine that sometimes that uh, we bring up and that people will react in an auditorium like this and they will say, that's all you preach on. Let me just put the record straight. The last time I preached a message on baptism was January of 2014, to my shame, that I have not preached a solid message on baptism since that time. Though I know it is important, and that's why we're doing it this day, is to try to make up before the Lord something that is vital in His Word. But here's what happens. That what happens when we get into this question between churches and different groups? There's a lot of debate about baptism. Oh, there's debate that goes, when should a person get baptized? How old should that person be? How, uh, what must they know before they get baptized? In different churches, there are different ideas about it. There's different ideas of why should one be baptized. You know, there are some churches that say you need to be baptized. It'll take away your original sin. Some say it'll take away all your sin. There are some that say you get baptized and it completes your salvation. Others say you don't need to get baptized. It's not necessary necessary to get into heaven. Others will say it is. Which one's right? There are some who would say, okay, the big question is who should get baptized? Some will say babies. Some will say never babies. Some will say only church members, only those who want to be church members. Some will say only believers. Some will say teens and adults. We get into the discussion, how should one be baptized? Should it be pouring, sprinkling, or by immersion? Or does any one of those account? You know, they, do, they, do they count before God Almighty? Here's a question. Who should do the baptism? There is questions and there is worthy of, of discussion. Should it be any church leader? Only a church leader. Anybody in the church. Could it be you baptize yourself? Which, by the way, is called sea baptism. Or could it be by, there's a groups that would teach, you cannot be baptized unless that person was baptized by a person who was baptized, 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 all the way back to John the Baptist. Okay? How they prove that, I don't know. Okay? But there's that discussion that people will say about baptism. What to call baptism? You know, here this morning, from many of us who came from a variety of different church backgrounds, boy, there's different terms. Some call it a sacrament, which means a means of grace. Some call it a ritual, a tradition. Some, here, we call it an ordinance, which means it is something ordained and commanded by God. So there's a variety of different discussions. You know, but the bottom line is this. It doesn't make any difference what any single preacher says. It doesn't make any difference if they are big-time or small-time preachers. It is not whether it's my preference or your preference. It makes no difference what we... By the way, I'll be honest. If I had the preference of how we would do baptism, we wouldn't do them the way we do. It's very inconvenient. Okay? We're doing baptism for one reason. The way we do it is, what does the Bible say? That's the key. It doesn't make a difference what a denomination says. It doesn't make a difference what a preacher says. What does the Bible say about baptism? So I want to answer several of those questions this morning. Now, some of you, it's not applicable because you have already done it. Some of you think you've done it, but you haven't really, according to the Bible. Some of you have no clue about baptism whatsoever. You've never even heard about it or other than you know that it's a time when family gets together and they have a meal after they do some ceremony. Go with me through the Bible in a very simple fashion to answer what does the Bible say about baptism. Let's, ask the, let's make this observation. According to the Bible, baptism is not required for anyone, for someone to get into heaven. How do I know that? Well, the Bible says this. It says twice in Jesus preaching that night to Nicodemus, he says to him, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Then he says, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you need to be baptized. He says you need to be born again. To build upon that, Jesus made a comment later on. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. He doesn't say by baptism. He doesn't say by church membership. He doesn't say through a Baptist church. He says you have to 
come to God through me, through a relationship with me. And that's talked about in Romans, where he's quoting the Old Testament that says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say whosoever shall be baptized. It doesn't say whosoever shall do good works. It says whosoever shall call upon the Lord. You and I need Jesus Christ to be our Savior. He is the only one, the only thing, the only way to be saved from our sin to get into heaven. In fact, we read, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of baptism, not of going to church, not of being in a good family, giving money, being charitable. We don't get to heaven by our good works. We get to heaven through relying on Jesus Christ and what he has done on Calvary. And then resurrecting from the dead and ascending to heaven. It is his work that has given us forgiveness of sin. It is his sacrifice that provides us an opportunity to get into heaven. And he says, you need to ask me to apply what I have have bought and paid for forgiveness, you have to ask me to apply it to your heart, to your life, to make you into one of my children, and then you're born again. Then you're on your way to heaven. Here, let me give you an illustration that's even further. There's a man who is on the cross next to Jesus, and there's two of them, two thieves. The one is belittling Jesus. The other one starts rebuking the one who is belittling and says, hey, listen, we deserve to be here. You should shut your mouth. We deserve to be here. And he has conversation with Jesus. Jesus makes comment to this thief who is dying with him and will be dead within the matter of a few hours. There was a total of six hours that they were hanging on the cross. But in the matter of a few hours, somewhere in that six hours, Jesus turns to him and says, today you shall be with me in paradise. That man never had opportunity to get baptized, and yet he goes to heaven. Why? Belief in Jesus Christ. Trusting that Jesus would provide him forgiveness. You have another account that I find even more interesting. Paul, the great evangelist of the New Testament, preaching to, he says, the Gentiles, but also the Jews, made it his heart's desire, his goal, to go out and preach the word of God. He said that we looked at just a few weeks ago, I would be anathema. I would, would choose to have my soul go to hell and take the place of some of my relatives, if I could, so they could go to heaven. He is so zealous about getting people saved. And yet, when he writes to this church in Corinth, he makes a comment about baptism. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, I am glad I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. I find that interesting. If Paul, the great evangelist, thought in his mind that baptism is the way to get the people to heaven, then no doubt he would have baptized everyone he could. But he didn't. Why? Because he knew that this was not the way to get to heaven. This was, the, this was just an explanation, an outward demonstration of your faith. It is not the way you possess faith. And so here the great evangelist says, I, I didn't do a lot of those baptisms. Others were involved. And I, that wasn't my goal in my ministry. My goal that when I came was to see you people get saved. And they got saved through faith in Christ, not through baptism. I, as well, let's make another comment. Number two. Baptism is a picture, a symbol of what gets you into heaven. It is not the means, it is only modeling it. It is only demonstrating it. It would be like me pulling out of my wallet or putting up on the board right now a picture of my wife or a picture of my kids or a picture of my grandkids. That would be a picture only, but I would say, this is my wife, this is my grandkids. And you would say, well, yes and no. That is a picture and a picture only. That's what baptism is. Baptism does not give you salvation. It is not the real thing, but it pictures it. Let me see if I can explain it this way. In Romans chapter 6, we read this at the beginning of the service. He says to the believers, he says, Know ye not that so many of us believers, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. It wasn't that we died on the cross. We know that's not true. He isn't saying that we were crucified. We weren't, we weren't whipped. We weren't nailed. But through baptism, we identify with Christ's death on the cross. Therefore, we are buried. With him by baptism. You've not been buried physically. I've not been buried physically. Now we may have done something goofy in a game at one time. But real, in reality. We've not yet been buried physically. That's not happened to us. But he says it has happened to us picture wise. We were buried with Jesus. By baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead. By the glory of the Father. Even so we should walk in newness of life. He is demonstrating that baptism. Is a picture of what Christ has done for you. 
that just as Christ died, was buried, and then rose again, so too you are saying, I am portraying to other people that that's what Jesus has done for me. That I have accepted his gift of salvation where he died, was put under the water, and brought back up. That's not the only passage that talks about this. If you were to go to Colossians, he talks about the same thing, this picture idea. He says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you were risen with him through the faith and the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. The idea is... Baptism pictures what Christ has done for all of us, and he has done this throughout Scripture. He used a lot of illustration in the Old Testament. They used the animals, they used the priest garments, they used the tabernacle, all picturing spiritual truths. In the New Testament, Jesus narrowed everything down to just two symbols of spiritual truth. The one was communion. We'll celebrate that tonight. Where Jesus Christ says, as he lifts up some of that, that wafer that he was going to distribute that evening, he said, this is my body. It wasn't really his body, but it was symbolizing the sacrifice he was making. Lifts up that cup of wine and says, this is my blood. It wasn't literally his blood. We understand that. He was using symbolism and saying, this represents the blood that I am shedding to give you eternal life, to buy that new covenant. So God used baptism in the same way. A picture of what Christ has done for us. Baptism, this is really important. It symbolizes when you are baptized, according to the Bible, you go under the water and come up. It symbolizes the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, think this through. That is important stuff. That is huge stuff. That is picturing the greatest event in all of history. It is picturing God's personal sacrifice made for you. What he has done for you. It is that which is so important to God that he sent his only begotten son to carry this out. Nobody else could do it. When you get baptized, when we talk baptism, we are talking from what God says. We are talking that which symbolized the work, the sacrifice of his son. It is really, really an important event. Not just back then in history, but when you're baptized, you are showing something extremely sacred, something that is miraculous, something that is beyond sacrifice. It is not something that we should take lightly. Baptism is picturing that which is done to get you to heaven. Number three, biblical baptism has got to be done by immersion or it's not baptism at all. It's then for some of us here in the room, we were sprinkled. Some of us were poured upon. That's not baptism according to the Bible. According to the Bible, it has to be by immersion. How do I know that? Well, number one is the word that's used. Every time you read in the New Testament the word baptism, you are reading the Greek word. The Bible, New Testament, was written in Greek. The, um, the original language, you are reading the word baptizo. It means to put under, to dunk to immerse. You say, well, it doesn't make any difference. Probably they used other words. No. The Greek had other words for sprinkling, another word for pouring. Never ever in the New Testament does he use rantizo or nipto to describe baptism. There's only one word. The only word that is used is to put under the water. Now, what's interesting is you look at other texts of the New Testament and they confirm this idea of going under the water. Why? Because every place that's mentioned where it gives us some of the details, it talks about needing enough water to go into the water. Like when Jesus was baptizing with his disciples in John chapter 3. They and John go too close to the river, it says in Judea, near to Salim. Why? Because there was much water there. You wouldn't need much water if you're pouring. If you're sprinkling, you could use a canteen, you could use a container. But they went where there was a river, enough water to walk down into. In the book of Acts, there's a story told about an Ethiopian eunuch who comes to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he's reading in the Bible. And as he's reading, he doesn't understand. God moves by the Spirit, Philip, physically to come to him. Philip starts talking and says, do you understand what you read? He says, no, somebody's got to explain it to me. It doesn't make sense. So he explains, and he says, he explained unto him Jesus. The text then says, as they went on their way, they come to certain water. And the man asked Philip, can I get baptized 
Well, when he explained Jesus to him, he explained baptism, the man knew about it. And he says, okay, can I get baptized? And then it says, you know, you can if you believe. And it says they went down both into the water. Why would you go down into the water if you were just going to pour? If you're just going to sprinkle? Because they were immersing. Because the word means he dunked him in the water. That's what it means. He was baptized. He was dunked. He was immersed. Only, only immersion, only the idea of going under the water and coming back out of the water, only immersion can picture death, burial, and resurrection. You can't get it out of pouring. You can't get it out of sprinkling. You can't get it in any other form but by immersion. So the word says it has to be by immersion. The word itself, the example in scripture is clear. As well as the picture that we are picturing, what Christ has done for us, it has to be by immersion. There is no other picture or a means or mode possible that pictures what Christ has done for you. And by the way, I remind you, this is a very important ordinance. One that is dealing with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We dare not tamper with it. We dare not goof with it. We dare not alter it. It is something extremely holy. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important event of all history. Let me give you another thought. Okay, And to wrap this up, if you weren't baptized by immersion, you weren't baptized biblically. You're not baptized yet. Okay? You say, well, Pastor Wayne, were you baptized by, as a, by sprinkling? Yes, I was. But that in all reality was not baptism. That was getting somebody spritzed. Okay? Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay? It wasn't baptism. Call it by, by some other title. But biblical baptism can only be done by immersion. Let me give you another thought. It is for believers only. That's why we refuse to baptize babies here. Why? Because the Bible indicates baptism by immersion is for believers only. That is this. That is the idea of somebody already having come to faith. The uh, Ethiopian eunuch, the story I just told you. He says, what does hinder me to be baptized? He wanted to. He was desiring to get baptized. I find that very interesting. That this man who is just hearing the gospel for the first time wants to get baptized. And he says, what, what's hindering me? And Philip, under the leading of the Spirit, says, if you believe with all your heart, then you may. You have to believe before you get baptized. Baptism does not come as an infant and then later on somebody believes. That's not biblical baptism. That is ritualistic baptism. That is a way to enhance church membership through some type of, you know, doing this with babies, but it does not fit the Bible pattern. The Bible pattern is you must believe, that is, you must call upon the name of the Lord, you must be born again, you have to follow that, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, you must, by grace, through faith, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe. After you believe, then you're supposed to be baptized. Some of you may be sitting here and say, well, I got baptized when I was a kid, but as a teenager at camp, then I made sure of my salvation. Then your early baptism, whatever you want to call it, doesn't count. It is after you have made sure of your salvation that you have believed, after you have, have nailed it down. Why, how, do I, how do I know that beyond that one passage? Watch this. Then they that gladly received his word. First they accept the word. Then they're baptized. When they believed what Philip was preaching concerning the things of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Then they are baptized. We find as well that it comes after they have made sure of salvation. Or as well after they are born again. Let me give you another thought. Baptism is also a picture of your dedication. See, there's two things mentioned here in the book of Romans. Not only that you are saying, this is what Christ has done for me, but when you're getting baptized, you are declaring what you are going to do for Christ. I invite you to go along with me a little bit further in this text of Romans chapter 6. What he is talking about, he's talking about your baptism, what it pictured, and what it continues to picture. And he's talking in this text that you, are, when you get baptized, are saying, here's, here's how Jesus died, buried, and resurrected, and here's the way I want to live from here on out. I want to die to self and live for Christ. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? Know you not that you were baptized into his death. And he goes on, talks about that. Pick up with me down in verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we've been put under the water, he says, so also in the likeness of his resurrection, we come up out of the water. Knowing that our old man has been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion for in that he died, he died once to sin, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto your sin, alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. He is saying that when you and I have gotten baptized, we not only picture what Jesus has done physically, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to die to self. We're going to live for Jesus. We are a new creature in Christ. We are going to try to do his will, his ways, in his timing. It is a picture again of dedication. Let me see if I can do it this way. You who get married, you are you're thinking about getting married. You go buy Cracker Jacks and you find a ring. Okay? Not not, you're going to go out and you're going to get some really good ring. You're going to get something that's expensive. You're going to make sure it is just, it glitters and it glows and it's really nice. And when you come to the wedding ceremony, there's going to be this comment that's going to be made. With this ring, I thee wed. Does that mean that as long as you have a ring, you are legally married? No. No. You don't need a ring to be legally married. It's a contract. It's a government contract. You can be married without a ring. There are some people here who did not have rings in their ceremony. There are some here who are married who do not have a ring anymore. They outgrew them, right? Yeah, that's, that's the case. It actually, I, with all my Samson-like strength, my ring just burst one day. <laughs> not. It did burst, but it was just because all my weakness. Um, so that, ready, that wedding ring, though, is an important part, and it is merely a symbol of your devotion and your dedication and your love for that person. And I still love you. I got, uh, it's, it's in a box somewhere. Um, you know, it's still important, but it's a symbol and a symbol only. Baptism is saying to Jesus, I love you. I am doing something outwardly. I'm doing an act outwardly that displays my dedication. With this baptism, I thee serve. That's what it is. It is your declaration that you are a disciple and going to follow Jesus Christ. And it is the declaration that he is requiring from Scripture. That he is saying that you should do this. In fact, let me go on to another thought. It is to be done by all believers. It is to be done by all believers. How do I know that? How do I know the scripture says? Well, if we look in the book of Acts and start going through the passages, every passage where you find people who have gotten born again on an individual basis, you will find that they got baptized as well. Here, follow with me in the book of Acts. Here we go. He's preaching in Jerusalem. And he says to the crowd, that says, what must we do? They've just heard that Jesus died, buried, and resurrected some 40 days earlier. And they say, what do we need to do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Not just some of you. Not just those of you who aren't afraid of water or those of you who, who you know, have an inkling to do this. He says to every one of them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. Repentance first, then baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now watch something. In the New Testament, there's a pattern of doing it ASAP. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, the same day. Let me take you to the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, he says, after hearing about faith in Christ, what does hinder me to be baptized? Nothing, you need to believe. And then they go down both into the water. He wanted to do it, and he wanted to do it right away. Okay, well, after he got saved. Let me show you another example. But when they believed in the city of Samaria, when they believed what Philip was preaching, they were baptized, both the men and the ladies. 
They followed through. As adults, now that they believe. Acts chapter 9. Paul, by this time he's called Saul, he is going out persecuting Christians. God strikes him down with that lightning bolt of bright light that comes at the high noontime. He is blinded. His friends have to lead him into the city where he was going to do persecution. Once in the city, he is informed, or I'm sorry, Ananias, is a believer, is informed that Paul is there. He's blind. He needs your help. Ananias goes to Paul, lays hands on him. His sight is restored and a Immediately after his sight is restored, he arose and was baptized. After he had said, Lord, what would you have me to do? After he has put faith in Christ, the first thing he, is, he does when he is physically able to, he gets baptized. The Philippian jailer. He runs into the jail after the doors have been opened by a miracle. And he is so impressed by hearing the singing and the testimony of Paul and Silas that he runs and he says, Good sirs, what must I do to be saved? They explained to him, you have to believe. And he, they spoke the word unto him. After they have shared the word with him and he's accepted, he took them home that evening. And the same hour of the night, he washed their stripes and was baptized after he believed. We go to Acts chapter 16. There's a certain woman that Paul is by the riverside. He shares the gospel with. Her name is Lydia. She listens to the things that Paul has preached the gospel. And then she and all who are with her who believe they are baptized. We continue in the book of Acts chapter 18. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord, plus his house, and many of the Corinthians. They heard, they believed, and they were baptized. You see, baptism is to be done by all believers, and only believers, but all who have become believers. It's commanded this way. It says, repent and be baptized every one of you. It's commanded when Peter is dealing with Cornelius. And Cornelius is evidently born again. He's got the spirit upon him. He's speaking in tongues. And he commanded that they should be baptized in the name of the Lord. It's required of discipleship. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus Christ is giving his last words before he sends into heaven. And he says to them, I want you to go into all the world and teach all nations. The word teach is mathetes. It is the word make disciples. It is the only imperative in this passage. It's the single command in the passage. It says make disciples of all nations. Now how do you do that? He gives them two participial phrases that are instrumental in showing how you make disciples. One is you baptize them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, So the way to make a disciple, first step of discipleship is explain to them baptism. Then what you do is you teach them to observe all things whatsoever. May I make an observation based on this passage that some of you won't like? But really I don't care because this is what the Bible says. If you're not baptized, you're not a disciple. That's what the text says. Discipleship, the first thing to make a disciple is after they have believed, they need to get baptized. The word disciple means a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot be claiming yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you refuse to do the first commandment of discipleship. You need to be baptized if you're a believer. Why? God commanded it. God told you to do it. You say, yeah, but I have my different ideas. Okay, go down to the driver's license bureau and have your own ideas about the driving test. You go down there and you say, I'm here to get my driver's license. I'm 16. I got my permit. I'm going to drive. You drive through the stop sign. You're not getting your driver's license. Well, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to go 30 miles an hour because they won't stop you if you go five miles over the speed limit. So I can go 30 down at the driving test. You're not getting a driver's license. You say, well, I can't parallel park. Well, maybe you'll get a driver's license test. (laughs) You have to abide by the rules established to get that driver's license. You can't, you can't walk out and say, well, I failed for the umpteenth time, but I'm, you know, I'm going to drive. You can't do it legally. You're not a licensed driver until you get that little plastic with that ugly picture that you don't ever want to show anybody because you look goofy. By the way, I'm saying that from experience. Probably yours looks better, but mine just look horrible. Okay? So you have that. Once you get that card, once you pass the test, you get a card, now you're a licensed driver. Let me throw this out by illustration this way. You say, well, I'm a disciple. Not if you don't follow the rules. You don't get that card of discipleship from Jesus Christ if you don't abide by his standards, which say you need to be baptized after you were saved by immersion. Then you got the discipleship card. Then you are now on that road to following through with discipleship. Christ wants us to do this confessing of him. 
There should be no reason why we would be embarrassed to confess him in baptism. Why we wouldn't want to, in a public sense, show that he died, buried, and resurrected for us and we want to live for him. Are we embarrassed of Jesus? Are we, are we ashamed that he would die for us? He says, whosoever should therefore shall confess me before man, I will confess him before my father. But if you're ashamed and do not want to confess him, he says, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to deny you. True discipleship means obedience, and the first step of that obedience is by baptism. So, question comes. Why don't believers get baptized? I don't know. I'm going, to, I'm going to use somebody else's writing. Some of you have heard John MacArthur, you know, a nationally known speaker. He wrote in the conversation, and I think he's right, he wrote this comments about why he thinks people don't get baptized. It is unmistakably clear that the Lord has called all of us to a means of public identification with Christ. In spite of that, there's a widespread non-compliance to this and even widespread indifference to this simple command. A person who claims to be a Christian but has not been baptized by believer's baptism, I'm not talking infant baptism, that's not in the Bible. A believer who claims to be a, a person who claims to be a Christian who has not been baptized by believer's baptism falls into one of the following categories. A believer who's not been baptized is number one, he does it because that believer may be ignorant, perhaps not taught or, per, or perhaps taught wrong. That there has been much teaching about, a wrong teaching about baptism is true. Even in evangelical churches, people are told that their infant baptism is sufficient and that it would be wrong, sinful to be baptized after you have come to faith in Christ because your infant baptism is sufficient. So there are people who are just ignorant. They have been taught wrong or they have not been taught at all to see what the Bible teaches. It is also possible that there are people who are not baptized because they're indifferent. They can't be bothered. They don't get around to it. It's not a priority. They understand it's commanded, but it's something that they're not concerned about obeying. They're indifferent. They don't want to argue about it. They don't want to discuss it. They just never get around to it because it's not that big a deal to obey Christ. It is possible also. There are folks who are not baptized because they are proud. They are not willing to humble themselves. They're not willing to admit that they have been disobedient for a period of time. They are embarrassed to acknowledge their disobedience because so much time has gone on and the more time that goes by, the harder it is to eat a humble pie and confess that disobedience and be baptized. So personal pride comes into play in some cases. There's another kind of attitude towards baptism among people in churches and even among believers that who are, that's uh, who we're talking about and I guess we would call it defiance. They refuse to obey for many reasons. Usually people like this are living in some type of sin, so they don't want to get baptized because they would feel hypocritical. And so in rebellion, they don't want to raise the stakes in their life by making a public proclamation of their repentance and devotion to Christ and then be viewed by those who know them for real as hypocrites. And then I suppose lastly, there are people in the church who profess Christ but who are actually not born again. They're not regenerated. Not true Christians, they, so they have no real desire to make a public confession. They want to be thought of as being Christians, so they hide out in the church, masquerading as believers, but they really are not. You who haven't been baptized, you fit somewhere in here. If you have not been baptized with true believers' baptism, you're in one of the categories. Either you haven't been taught, you're, you aren't willing to humble yourself, it doesn't matter to you, you refuse to be baptized because you don't want to put your life on record, or you're hiding in the church as a non-believer. Apart from that, I can't figure any reason or any category where you could be placed as a believer who, who is not yet baptized. Let's make another question. Let's, as, we, as we bring this together. Some will still say, even though I've mentioned it a couple of times, doesn't any method of baptism matter? It's, it's okay, isn't it? They will say it's the idea that counts. They will say, you know, at least the baby baptism was better than nothing. They will say it doesn't make any difference. It's not that big of a deal because it's not going to get me to heaven anyway. Okay. Already we've talked about this. But let me give you one Bible example of the mode and the timing being very important. The book of Acts, chapter 19. Paul is out preaching the word of God. As he's preaching, he comes across a group of believers by Ephesus. He is teaching to these people, and he gets into conversation with them. In the conversation, he is talking, and they say, we've never even heard of the Holy Ghost. Who's the Holy Ghost? 
And Paul explains he, who the Holy Spirit is. And then he goes on, he says, by the way, were you ever baptized? And they say, yeah, we were baptized. We were baptized unto John the Baptist's baptism, which was a baptism unto repentance. And he says, well, wait a minute. Don't you remember what John said? John said you need to believe on him which should come after me. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, John the Baptist baptized by immersion. Okay? And so John did the immersion mode, the same as Jesus did. But his symbolism was different. He was baptizing people to repentance that their sins were being washed away. That is not what Jesus described as the picture of baptism. You're picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and your dedication to him, dying to yourself. And so John had a different picture when he did the baptism. And Paul is talking to these people and saying, now wait a minute, you were baptized the way John told you to be baptized, but that was a different picture. Though it was by immersion. And it came before you were saved. You know, you have yet to believe And so when they heard this, they believe on Christ and they get baptized again by immersion to make sure the picture is right. So is the picture important in baptism? Absolutely, according to Acts 19. Absolutely. It's it's what is being presented here. When is it being presented? It's not, okay, I was baptized early on by immersion. That'll count since I got saved just last week. No, it doesn't. The timing, the picture, the method is all important or you aren't doing it the Bible way. So we have to follow what the Bible is. Again, I prefer not to. I think this tank and heating it up and cleaning it and getting it all, I think it's a little bit inconvenient. Okay? No, I I take that back. It's a lot inconvenient. Okay? It'd be a whole lot quicker and easier to just spritz somebody. To just take this water that nobody's drunk out of and just kind of, you're done. But it's not Bible. It's not Bible. We have no choice in the matter. It's not our likes, our dislikes. It is what the Bible says we need to do. So we do it. As well, let me me see if we can do this with another question. Some might say, you say it's by immersion, but how in the world could they have possibly baptized 3,000 people in the book of Acts in Jerusalem? It would be hotter there than it is here today. It would be drier. It would be as dry as your lawn is. How would you baptize 3,000 people? That is just unbelievably silly. Uh, You should read your Bible and study your history a little bit better. You should understand that back in Bible days, Jerusalem had different pools where they would do for their ceremonies in the temple where people would go and they would do ceremonial cleansings in these large pools that were located in the city. And at the time of Pentecost and at the time of of Passover, the city would grow up to over a million to a million and a half of people and they would have to accommodate all those people. Normally, Jerusalem would be around 70,000. All of a sudden, they would have such an influx of people, but they could handle the ceremonial cleansing and bathing of that million people at Pentecost and also at Passover before they'd start talking about believer's baptism. So the Jews were already doing some of these large cleansing bathing situations, ritualistic, that was already taking place. So they built large pools in Jerusalem. One is called the Pool of Siloam that was built hundreds of years earlier. It had underground caverns, and it was to provide so that when Hezekiah built it, that when they were attacked, they would be able to have a water supply and to hold out indefinitely there at Jerusalem. Well, by the New Testament, it became a bathing pool. When it's at a very low spot, you can go swimming in it yet even today. And so people would use that regularly. There was another one called the Pool of Bethsaida that's talked about in another chapter of Scripture. It was large enough that it could accommodate dozens and dozens and dozens of people at one time, that they could go in and do their ritual cleansing. This is where Jesus healed the man and the man who wanted to get down into the water when the water was stirred. So they could accommodate lots of people. That's not an issue. Archaeologically, it's not an issue at all in Scripture that they could baptize even a small number of people that they would have enough water for a million and a half. There's only 3,000 getting baptized. So there's not an issue of water. In fact, if you go back and start doing any kind of intent, an intense Bible study or study at all, you will find that in the very early churches, they didn't have little fonts 
that you see in churches today. They had baptismal pools. They had areas where they, at that time, close to the New Testament, they all understood it's by immersion. It's by immersion. Even Greek Orthodox, when they started baptizing babies in the five, six hundreds, they still did it by immersion and still do it that way even up to today because they understand the wording means to put under the water. And so you have in ancient, in ancient sites where there are churches, you find many of these, these pools that are put there. These people, though they're in an arid culture, they could handle and do and get the water they needed to do what they felt was important. It would be the normal thing of people living out west. They could get the water and do what's important. So we can't use that to change the New Testament teaching that it shouldn't be by immersion because they didn't have enough water. They had it. They did it. And history proves it as well as the, all the other evidences. They did by immersion despite the water, water issues. What's supposed to be said when somebody gets baptized? What words are supposed to be said? Oh, I know. I baptize you in the name of the Father. You better say it. I'm holding him under. Okay. Better baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that comes from Matthew chapter 28. That's the formula that has to be said. Really? Really? In the New Testament, we read in the book of Acts that he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. We also read that in Acts chapter 19, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. You cannot consistently find in the New Testament that there was a certain phrase that was stated when they were baptized. So we purposely do this. Some of the staff purposely does this when they baptize just to see who's awake. Okay? When they baptize, I'll baptize you in the name of Jesus. And there's always a couple who are awake. And they said, hey... Is it really count? You didn't say in the name of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. But we followed the Bible. We followed the Bible. The Bible gives you that name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It also says you can be baptized in the name of Jesus. So, conclusion, there is no specific statement that needs to be made when you're baptizing the person. Whether you say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus. Both are viable forms of baptism. Here's a question that comes up in our community, in our area a lot. What about trying immersion? In our community, this is an issue. Never heard about it when I was in seminary until we came to Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Because in this area, with a lot of the brethren churches and the variety, there's triune immersion. Triune immersion is triple baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. The reason that it's done is because, and if you talk to the preachers in the area, who, and I have, who do the baptisms this way, this is the explanation. Because the word here, the participle where it says baptizing, is a plural participle. It implies more than one baptism. It implies multiple baptisms. That's true. That's absolutely true. But grammar says you use a plural verb with a plural direct object, which means... How many people does it say in this text we're getting baptized? Baptizing them. So when you're describing a baptism of them, you have to use a verb that says there was a lot of baptisms taking place because there was a lot of people involved. It doesn't prove three times. It proves multiple dips of multiple people. As well, some would say in this area, well, you have to do it three times because you're doing it in the name of the... Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I've already showed you that in the book of Acts, that's not how they did it. They baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you can't, you can't use that as an argument. This is my biggest concern. My biggest concern is you're distorting the picture that baptism gives. Tell me, please tell me, when did the Father die? Bury and resurrect. When did the Holy Spirit die, bury, and resurrect? He didn't. Who died, buried, and resurrected? Jesus. He did it once. It's a picture. How many times do you get saved? Once. So if we're starting to distort the picture, then, then there's an issue. Because John 19, when the picture wasn't done right... They have, the Apostle Paul had them rebaptized. Listen, let me put it this way. You and I would be very, very sensitive about people 
doing things bad to this object. Yes? If this object was trampled upon, would that bother you? Some of you get bothered when there's flags you see and they don't have lights on them at night. You say they shouldn't be doing that. Or the flag is out in the rain. They shouldn't be doing that. Okay? Some of you would be bothered if somebody is, is doing this, this flag and not giving it the honor and the respect because it represents something important. Okay? Please do not misunderstand. Hear me clearly. I'm all for America, and I'm thankful for America. But that's not the most important symbol in the world. Okay? When it comes to important symbols, the baptism of Jesus Christ ranks right up there. Baptism represents the greatest event in all of history. It represents God in the flesh coming to die, bury, and resurrect for you and me. It is more sacred than this flag is. We dare not. If we're going to get upset about somebody fooling with the flag, then let's get real as believers. We don't fool with baptism. We do it the way God says, in the method, the mode that God says, and we do it his way, and only his way, and we don't alter it. Why? It is a sacred symbol. Hey, by the way, can I throw this to you? Jesus throws communion out there as the other sacred symbol of his death and bury, uh, death for sin. What does he do when people start fooling with communion? What did he say to the Corinthians? When you are not taking this symbolism seriously... And you don't do it in a worthy fashion. That's why some of you are sick and some of you sleep. God takes the symbolism of that which his son does more serious than most any one of us in this room. Probably than all of us in this room. So I have no compulsion, no desire to try changing the method of baptism, though I would prefer to do it a different way. I'm not. I won't. God says it is too sacred for you and I to fool with. That we just do it the way God says, period, that's it. If it means inconvenience, it's inconvenience to you and me. If it means when we go into the water and come up, we look like a drowned rat. Our, head is, our hair is all over. My tuft goes in a different direction. Well, it's probably sticking up already, okay? It makes no difference. This is the work of Jesus Christ that we're representing. It is sacred. It is holy. We do it his way. And we follow that. So what does it all mean to us today? If you are trusting in baptism to get you into heaven, you should stop. Because it won't. It is Jesus and Jesus only that gets you into heaven. You need to be born again. You need to understand baptism is not what gets you into heaven. We've explained that already. You need to get saved. If you have not yet been baptized by single immersion, after you've been saved, you should do it ASAP. You should do it ASAP. I can't say it any more simply. This is what God commands. This is the practice of the New Testament. This is what the believers in the New Testament wanted to do when they were born again. This is how you confess Christ. The first step of confessing Christ. You know, some people get so dedicated, they'll put themselves out there as the example because they have a cause for medicine. We have a greater cause. We have a cause of witnessing and testifying of the great work of Jesus Christ. Of telling others what he has done for us and what he means to us. Why, oh why, those of you who got saved at camp this week, why would you hesitate in getting baptized? Those of you who have prayed this last couple of weeks to get born again, why would you hesitate? You want to declare the greatness of a greater cause than medicine. You want to declare the cause of Jesus Christ. You should get baptized ASAP. For the majority here this morning who have already been baptized in the past, for some of us we go all the way back to 1970s that we got baptized after we were born again. What we should do today is honestly take a look at our lives. And look, and even though it's been decades since we were baptized, are we living up to what we were baptized, saying when we were baptized? I am going to serve Jesus Christ. You said that publicly by your baptism. Are you doing it?